Welcome to the St. Emlyn's Podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. And I'm Simon Kelly. And this is our April update. We've had Easter, we've had the Arkem CPD conference, we've had a, a jolly time. We've been quite busy, so the content this month will be less, but no less so in quality, Simon. Plenty to still talk about. Before we go any further, though, tell us about the CPD conference for the Royal College. That seemed like a huge success. Yeah, it was. I mean, I think we've learned a lot about how to do online events over the last year. Well, we've all had to, haven't we? But I think the college's approach with the Arkem events team has been great. The platforms that we've assessed and used and the concept of giving short talks and then lots of discussion afterwards to try and get some of that feeling of, you know, what it means to be at a conference, I think has worked really well. It's not the same though, is it? I mean, I think we all do want to go back to -to face-to-face events, but we've done well. And I think the quality of the talks has been great. So there is a way forward here, isn't there? But yeah, the face-to-face events we've missed. And actually the first post for the month of April was about CODA, uh, formerly known as SMAC. CODA has now announced that there will be, we hope, a conference in April next year, 2022. Goodness, that sounds a way away. From the 3rd to the 6th of April in Melbourne. So just even the idea that we might have the chance to get together is a lovely thought. Yep, it is. Unfortunately, it's on the other side of the world, so it does involve a lot of travelling. The opportunity to travel is also there for those of us lucky enough um, to have the opportunity, the time and the money to go. Coder Ethos has always been that they will make their content available free. Um, after the event and there'll be lots of free online streaming events as well so even if you can't go hopefully you can join the community and I think we're all desperate to to get that kind of interaction which really does accelerate science ideas education bringing people together does still make a difference so we and I think it's the inspirational aspect isn't it meeting people from different countries different experiences and that'll be even more valuable as we all compare what's been going on with our own covid experience and actually the last podcast we did, although in May, was your conversation with, well, somebody's experiencing something absolutely overwhelming in India. That was an amazing conversation. I would recommend people go back and listen. What, what were your take-homes from that, Simon, about what's been going on there? Well, speaking to Anka Verma, who's a friend of ours who works in Delhi, I mean, the bottom line is it's incredibly tough. What I took away from that is the sort of conversations that we had in the UK about what we would do if the oxygen ran out. What would we do if we absolutely ran out of beds? What would we do if there were really no intensive care beds? What if we couldn't actually get the patients into the hospital? We had those theoretical conversations. And I remember at the time thinking that this is incredibly difficult to just have the conversations and to, to conceptualise. To then to actually speak to somebody who is in that that world, who genuinely has concerns that the, the oxygen supplies are running out in hospitals, that they can't admit patients to hospital because they simply don't have the facilities to treat them. And we've all seen the pictures on the news. I thought it was horrendous. And, you know, respect to Anchor and his colleagues, he spends a lot of time looking after each other. I think that's really important. But I think we know in the UK that we've been psychologically traumatised by the COVID-19 epidemic. I can only begin to wonder what it's going to be like for places like India. There were a couple of real take-homes for me when I listened to that podcast. The, the first was that when he said... There isn't really a single person in India who hasn't been affected by a relative or close friend or dying from coronavirus. That really brings it home, doesn't it? I don't think that was exaggeration. I think that was incredibly realistic. The other thing was that this is young people now who in India seem to be suffering the most, not least because this wave has come after they've got a lot of their older patients vaccinated. And I think that was a lesson For us here in the UK, we've got to keep going with vaccination. We can't stop that positivity. We will come and talk a little bit about post-vaccine headaches and, and the slight blip that's caused over the last few weeks. 
But to continue where we're going is is really important. And complacently, we just can't let it drift into our practice at all. We've got to maintain our vigilance because we're going to have to learn to live with this, I think, rather than ever completely going away. Yeah, and I think the issue about the young people was, was, was really interesting. I'm not sure whether it's because it's affecting younger people or the fact that India is just a, is a predominantly a young population and a small percentage of a lot of people is still a lot of people. But that really does speak to the fact that we were close um, in the UK to, to really running out and we dodged a bullet. And the problem I have now is people say, oh, well, it wasn't as bad as you said it was going to be. That's because we planned for it. and We did stuff and we now got a vaccine. The alternative would would have been horrendous. It was pretty bad, but it, gosh, it could have been worse. And as we're on the topic, why don't we just skip to Dan's post about post-vaccine headache in the emergency department? We actually mentioned this on our last podcast, even though the post was in April. It was such a hot topic and has gone a little bit quiet now. But even recently, I've been hearing in the press and, and other outlets this reluctance to have the AstraZeneca vaccine because of the concern about post-vaccine headaches and whether or not that represents vaccine-induced thrombocytopenic thrombosis. Where do you think we're up to with this now, Simon? Have you developed a really streamlined approach to this? I think we're doing okay down in Southampton with how to manage this, but we have seen a few cases. And, and likewise, we have here too. The headache thing is is important because that relates to the cerebral venous thrombosis, which is this unusual prothrombotic event which sort of brought this to light. But actually, it's thrombosis of other sorts as well. So it's you can get thrombosis in other areas, and particularly in unusual areas like the arm. I mean, we can get arm thrombosis, but more so. And our approach is very much to um, take these patients, have a reasonable suspicion that this might be going on, and then to do early bloods, particularly looking for platelets, because the VITT, the vaccine-induced thrombocytopenic thrombosis, um, is associated with a low platelet count almost in almost every single case. Now, you can still get CVT or a DVT or something like that, post-AstraZeneca vaccine, but it might not be due to VITT. Getting that idea into people's heads that we still need to investigate people for other causes rather than thrombosis of headache, other causes of DVT apart from just VITT after an AstraZeneca vaccine has been a bit of a challenge. Not everything is due to this VITTT. It's still rare, but you still need to look for it, be aware of it, and having a structured approach, getting platelets, and then if the platelets are abnormal, doing the further tests like D-dimers and clotting, etc., is the way that we've taken this forward. Interestingly, we have picked up um, a couple of cerebral venous thrombosis in patients who presented with headaches who clearly don't have VITT. Just makes you wonder whether or not we're nat- actually now getting better at spotting that diagnosis in itself, because in the past, I don't think we spotted it very often at all. It is true. Although, although I try and tell people that emergency medicine is simple, there are times when it just makes itself more complicated, isn't it? And you have to just stop yourself to remind yourself what you're doing. I mean, about this time last year, we were saying that not all shortness of breath is COVID. And now here we are saying not all headaches are VITT. The things are there to catch you out. And I remember vividly one of the best smack talks I ever went to is the Chris Nixon talk about type one and type two thinking. And I'm very much a type one thinker. I shoot from the hip. I make links. And this is where I need to make sure I switch on my type two thinking so that I can think through what can be the other causes. And emergency departments are getting busier. We've been seeing pre-COVID numbers and more in our department. And I think that's making it feel even more overwhelming as we come out of COVID. The the numbers are are there and the idea that we can take shortcuts, we've got to resist and make sure we're just as thorough as we've always been. And we think carefully about these cases where the pattern doesn't quite fit or we don't quite get an answer. Now, we had the second busiest day since 2019 this week. Um, And that's in terms of patient numbers. But of course, they're now entering a system 
which has been stress tested by COVID with different triage protocols, different areas, hot zones, cold zones, respiratory areas, non-respiratory areas, whatever you want to call them, blue, yellow, green in some places. And so we're now starting to stress test the system with normal numbers of patients. And there's no doubt that, that that's a significant strain on the system. I don't know whether they'll put this out, but next week when things like um, cinemas and bars and clubs and other uh, alcohol-associated drinking activities return, and we did see a, a massive decrease in those type of presentations during the pandemic, I think a number of departments are going to be significantly stress tested in the next few weeks. I, I, I'm a bit worried about that one. I don't know about how you feel about it down in Southampton. I'm very similar, actually. But the thing that I worry about the most is the psychology of it all. I think we've all experienced a degree of psychological trauma over the last year in whatever form that may be. It's been tiring even just thinking about this stuff, even if your hospital wasn't massively affected, to get back to where we were. And usually this is the time of year where we're actually relaxing after winter. June is tends to be the one month where winter goes away in the emergency department and the sun is shining and you think, well, maybe there's a respite. And now there isn't. And that need to make sure we keep ourselves grounded, look after staff, make sure we're still caring for people. There is undoubtedly this anxiety that patients have that they need looking after, they want looking after now. General practice is doing everything it can. We are doing everything we can, but the system is stressed and we just have to make sure we look after each other, not just in the ED, but throughout the whole healthcare system. This also relates to the fact that there is no point people getting on Twitter and blaming different individuals about what's going on. We've just got to get through it and make sure we do our best. Absolutely. And definitely don't blame general practice. They're working proper hard at the moment. Well, absolutely. And I did emergency medicine, not least because I didn't want to do general practice. So anyone who does general practice has my absolute respect. We mentioned this individual often, Simon at St. Emlyn's. Uh, he's perhaps one of the most famous scientific clergy there are. Bayes has now entered us our thinking again with your excellent post about pre-review belief and how that can influence your critical appraisal. And this is just even deeper thinking about how we look at papers and how well different individuals can seem to take the same data and come to completely different conclusions. We've seen this over the past few years. TXA is an excellent example. Can you just tell us a little bit about where this blog post came from and what it was that made you think about it? Well, it was TXA, to be honest, So and CRASH-3. So in CRASH-3, big randomised control trial of TXA in head injury. And if you take the headline figures from the trial in all comers who they included, the primary outcome of whether or not they lived or died from a head injury-related death at 28 days, there wasn't actually a statistically significant difference. That's fine. That's what the data says. But then there was some uh, subgroup analysis done, which showed that in certain groups, particularly those who don't appear to have a devastating brain injury right from the off, so the ones who might potentially benefit from TXA, then the data suggests that there's potentially a significant benefit in that group of patients. So if your pupils aren't blown, your GCS is 8 to 14. And I kind of like that idea. It makes pathophysiological sense to me. It fits with what I previously know about TXA, how I understand the science. It fits with the people that I know who've done the research. And the point is in that is that when I look at the paper and I believe that perhaps I'm being entirely objective and I'm just looking at the numbers and I'm just looking at how it was done, that's not really true, is it? I'm totally invested in TXA before I even read the paper because I've been an advocate of CRASH 2. I prescribe it in my department. It's a KPI for us. I know the people. I've been to some fantastic lectures on it. I've asked questions of these people. They've been on the blog. They've been on the podcast. Well, of course, I'm biased before I even pick it up. And then other people um, will have had a very different journey to Crash 3. 
Um, they may have um, not used TXA in their practice regularly. They may quite rightly notice that CRASH-2 wasn't done in countries like the US and Canada, and therefore they may feel that the evidence doesn't really back up what they do in their practice. And so they'll come to the point of opening the CRASH-3 paper, uh, believing that it probably doesn't work. And then when you get data like in this trial, which is not super strong in either direction, so it's not definitively it doesn't work because a subgroup analysis says it probably does. And it's not definitively that it definitely uh, does work because the overall uh, mortality, there's no difference for all comers. You can see where people could quite happily sit on the fence on that and then just fall off on one side or the other, largely influenced by where their beliefs started before they even started reading. So for us as critical appraisal people, what it means is that what I suggest to people is before you read the, t- read the title of the study, read the methods, and then write down what you believe it's going to show, and then read the full paper. And only then can you perhaps get an objective view of what actually is in front of you. And do you think there's any other ways that we can try and prevent that from happening? Or is it just inevitable and actually recognising it is part of the process? So if you go into something knowing that you have perhaps got that bias, you can actively work against it. You do need to go into it with your eyes open. Um, writing down your declaration before you read the, the results would be a good idea. But that's generally not how it's going to work, is it? It's most of the time you're going to read it, make a decision and then find out that there's some idiot on the internet who doesn't agree with you. I hate to break it to people, but there are lots of people on the internet who don't agree with you who are right or have a different perspective or have a different view. And you should listen to those. So when you do find people disagreeing with you, particularly about a paper, particularly about evidence, then you need to think carefully about why they think what they do. And particularly if it comes from somebody reputable um, who's got a long track record in critical appraisal, you do need to maybe get, you know, give them a call, contact them, do a blog with them, podcast, have a conversation, and try and understand why perfectly reasonable people with lots of intelligence come to a different conclusion to you do. Because actually they might be right, you might be right, or in fact, the truth may be somewhere in the middle. I'm more and more interested in bias itself across lots of different areas of medicine. And you see this on a day-to-day basis, don't you? Not just in this format, but every day in the emergency department where a patient immediately goes in the department massively affects their treatment. So if that patient with a headache goes to minors, they will get completely different treatment to if they go to majors with a headache. And if somebody writes on the triage notes, a comment about um, they recently had shingles, then that patient's pain will get attributed to the fact they recently had shingles, even though the fact it doesn't fit at all. And this is where medicine for me becomes fascinating. The idea that we just have to think quite deeply. We have to remember and be really self-aware of the things that we go into believing and how we can make sure that we're not dragged down one direction. I think you've done a brilliant job just pointing out that this affects not just clinical practice, but critical appraisal as well. I also think clinically, you and I as, as, as more senior clinicians, we need to work in an environment and to foster a culture where people can come up to and go, Ian, are you sure you're right about that? irrespective of, of their grade, their specialty, um, what profession they're in. You need to culture an environment because there will be times when your pre-existing beliefs and biases mean that you're actually in the wrong. And you do need that little tap on the shoulder and go, Ian, are you sure? Well, I've had a good couple of occasions in my career where I've almost come a cropper if it hadn't been for people actually doing that. And those biases are, are not just the ones we've mentioned, but it might be by you being tired or hungry or all of those other things that make medicine so much more than just the scientific fact it is fascinating what we do isn't it we're very lucky to have the jobs we do i think it's a great job it's a great job i still enjoy going to work and i still enjoy the clinical practice it's hard some days i'm not getting away from that but it is interesting 
And gosh, wouldn't you rather be doing an interesting, hard job than a boring one? Most of the time. Most of the time. <laughs> now, the final post from April that we haven't yet covered was also another podcast that you did with the legend that is Peter Brindley, a man who I have met on a couple of occasions personally and like hugely. And this was about how we decide whether stuff like this that we're doing now, podcasts, blogs, whether they're any good, whether people should pay any attention to them, or whether it's just two lonely old blokes talking into the ether, praying that somebody cares about them. Well, there is that, and that is a sort of scoring system of sorts. But I thought this was interesting because, again, it's an area where I've changed my view over the years. Is there any worth in trying to measure this sort of stuff? You know, the, the impact of foam ed or blogs and podcasts. And at face value, um, you could say no. It, it's, you, know, you know, you put stuff out there, and if people like it, then that's great. If people don't like it, then they'll vote with their feet, so to speak, or vote with their mouse. But there perhaps is some value in it. I think there's there's a couple of things. The first is that if you can set criteria for what good looks like, it then helps people coming into this sphere to realise what good looks like and to aspire to doing the similar sort of things so that there's a an evidence trail, that there's a critical appraisal base that people have got um, access to um, feedback and referrals and stuff like that. But also, and this is less of an issue, I think, for, for, for us in the UK, but in some health economies, then academics, and this is academic work, there's no doubt about it, need to demonstrate their value to keep their positions and to keep um, their, them in post and to gain promotion. And so some form of quality measure is useful, particularly this is more in the, in the Americas. And so I can completely understand where these things come from. The difficulty is, and as we talk about in the post, is you know how do you measure what good is? You kind of know it when you see it, don't you, Ian? But there perhaps are markers. And then we also talk about the fact that there have been scores out there like the SMI score, the Alien Air score, the metric and the metric Q scores. But many of them are actually being superseded by major search engines. So search engines like Google now put FOMED sites into what they call the EAT site, also known as your money or your life. Because it's medical health information, they are very careful that you have to demonstrate that you have uh, credibility in this area in order for your posts to be ranked on Google. And so we're seeing the whole information access availability and sharing models change as the large search engines get in on this area and realize that there are potential harms and also potential gains in this area. So it's a fascinating area. Please have a listen to the podcast, if nothing more than to just listen to Pete Brindley, because he's just great. And a very, very funny man. And if you're ever feeling a bit low, uh, just search Peter Brindley and go and watch one of his lectures. He's done a couple at Smack. They are full of humour and giggles and education. And frankly, something I aspire to try and emulate whenever we try and do stuff here on St. Emlyn's. And of course, you're all discerning listeners because here you are at uh, one of the UK's primary air sites. Uh, don't, uh, don't believe me. Just check out the rankings. Uh, Simon, do you know what that is? April. Well, we've had Easter, we've had a CPD conference, we've had a few posts, there's more coming in May, no doubt. And there's lots of other stuff happening in the UK. The big news is a change in our curriculum for our emergency medicine trainees. And no doubt we will be talking about that in the future. There's lots going on with that. That will be absolutely at the forefront of our minds, whether we're trainees or trainers in the UK. And as we hopefully come out of this COVID wave and into this new world, we'll be able to keep talking about medicine and how we do our best to care for people my big message would be would keep keep smiling the departments are getting busy people will ask you for all sorts uh, but remember you're there as their their first line to care for them 
and they come to you because they believe in you and they have every reason to believe in you. Um, you're all proving your worth every single day. So yeah, maintain your humor. Keep going. There are sunnier times ahead. Take care, everybody. Have fun.